This week's TribCast is sponsored by Texas Rural Funders. Catch a Fire matches skilled, professional volunteers with nonprofits to increase their capacity. More at catchafire.org. And Texas Farm Bureau. Texas Ag Today is a daily podcast bringing you the latest news in Texas agriculture from the TFB Radio Network. More at texasfarmbureau.org slash radio. Hello and welcome to the Texas Tribune TribCast for November 11th, 2020. It's actually November 10th as we record this. We're recording a day early um, because the Tribune has Veterans Day off tomorrow. So if anything happens in the next 12 hours, we're not talking about it here on the TribCast. But joining us today are executive editor Ross Ramsey. Howdy. Washington Bureau Chief Abby Livingston. Hi and politics and justice reporter, Emma Platoff. Hi there. Hi, thanks for joining us. So since the last time we talked, we know who the president is going to be. It took several days, but all the news networks and publications that were tracking this from the New York Times to NBC News and Fox News all declared that Joe Biden has won the presidential election. Uh, as I'm sure everyone listening knows, however, Donald Trump has not conceded and has promised to fight this, raising unsubstantiated claims of voter fraud, calling for recounts, etc. Over the weekend, we saw President George W. Bush congratulate Biden, but with a few small exception, exceptions, we haven't seen much from the Texas Republican delegation acknowledging Biden's victory. Abby, you've been tracking this for us. What are we hearing from the Texans, particularly the Texans Republican, Texas Republicans on this? Well, one of the most prominent supporters of these unsubstantiated allegations of voter fraud is uh, Senator Ted Cruz. And so um, he has been a vigorous advocate for this point of view. Um, and it's not... Um, first of all, to be clear, if there is voter fraud, it will be addressed in court. And when you hear legal experts discuss this, um, these lawsuits don't have a lot of standing. Um, but there, and I don't think there's any chance that this could derail any sort of transfer of power. What it can do is create a great deal of lack of trust in the system. And um, we could enter into a presidential race that feels like it was pretty close because of how long it took to count, but in the end, not coming out as very close. Um, uh, Biden is appearing to have the largest margin since um, Barack Obama's 2008 victory, um, that there is now this uncertainty in many circles that Joe Biden was a duly elected president, and there really isn't much doubt in the um, sphere of the courts, of the Electoral College, all of those things. And so it, it's, it's a very strange transition um, and uh, it, it's it's quite something. And CNN reported today that the president's son, Donald Jr., um, and his uh, partner, uh, Kimberly Guilfoyle, are making motions to have control over the Republican National Committee. And that is a really big deal. Um, that is who sets the rules for the next presidential contest. So if you're a Republican who's thinking about running in 2024, um, that's probably something on your mind. Yeah, I mean, we, we might know uh, one or two Republicans who might be thinking about running in 2024. 
<laughs> we, uh, you know, as, as you noted, kind of the response from Ted Cruz, I watched his um, interview on Fox News Sunday morning, and he kind of talked about two things, and it was interesting to watch the congruence. You know, he, he, the beginning of the interview, he talked uh, what we're hearing from a lot of people. You know, the media doesn't call elections. The, there are official bodies and states, you know, need to canvas votes and everything like that. And then, and then there's the question of voter fraud or, or irregularities. You know, he brought up um, an issue where uh, one county initially miscounted votes um, in Michigan. And, and he said that the, the technology that that county was using was being used by dozens of other Michigan counties. It turns out that it wasn't actually the technological problem it was someone typed in a number wrong and and that happened so you know a lot of like raising little things um where where there might have been problems that that could cast doubt when when if you really kind of drill into it there's not a lot there but then the other thing he did at the end of the interview was the interviewer asked him about georgia and the special elections and he immediately shifted his tone and started talking about how massively important these two special elections were because assuming joe biden wins then that would, if the Democrats win those special elections, then the Democrats have control of the Senate. So, you know, I wonder if, how much of this do you think, Ross, is actual legitimate concern about how this election went? And how much of this is, you know, as we talked about, whether it's positioning yourself for 2024 or, you know, not wanting to upset your base and some of the other things that might be going on here politically? You know, I think that in the Republican Party, the sort of abiding thing here is that there's not much daylight between Donald Trump and Republican Party voters. And the senators and House members and everybody else in the Republican Party don't want to offend Trump for fear of offending those voters. So they have to wait for Trump to get out of the way. And they're going to play his game as long as he's on the court. Um, and whether they, you know, most of them are anyway. I think there's a lot of positioning in this. I think that, uh, you know, I'm, I'm very curious to see if and when he accepts the results, whether it's a concession or not, what the pivots are for all of these people that are jumping into this thing. And, you know, the thing that Abby pointed out is if you're um, if you are in a positioning race for 2024, you want to make sure that nothing happens to the rules of the game that are going to predetermine who might win that 2024 race before it even gets started. So there's a lot going on here. Um, and I think the people in Washington first are don't get in the way of the bear while the bear is still alive. And, you know, after that, we'll see how they position themselves. Sure. So, you know, uh, other kind of state leaders that we have heard from on this, uh, Greg Abbott was was largely pretty silent um, leading up to uh, up until uh, Monday evening where he, he put out a statement in which he didn't really make any kind of an argument about uh, fraud or anything like that, but basically made the same kind of statement of, uh, you know, we we agree all we all agree every legal vote counts and that illegal votes do not count. There are processes in place in each state to determine if any vote is legal and we must respect those processes to ensure the integrity of our elections, which, you know, in and of itself is not a particularly controversial statement. You know, I don't think anyone is saying that because the New York Times or, you know, Fox News says that Biden won the election, that then he just automatically becomes president. You still count all the votes. You still roll out the string play out the string. You know, one thing we noted in our story about this was that, um, you know, 
Greg Abbott congratulated Angie Chin Button on election night. She is currently up by, or as of uh, Monday night at least, was up by 223 votes, which is a much smaller margin than, you know, Biden is up in any of these big states. And, uh, you know, obviously there's still some votes to be counted and some canvas deadlines that have arrived, that have not arrived. Um, Emma, do you see, I mean, is there anything, one argument we've seen from Abbott and from other lawmakers is like, look, Texas, Texas has counted its votes. It's declared its winners. Uh, why can't these other states do this this quickly? Uh, I mean, have you, do you see any any validity to that argument? Well, it's an interesting point. I mean, we we as Texas journalists, we're all, of course, very grateful that the state has been uh, comparatively faster than states like you know Pennsylvania and Georgia. We also know it was um, Republican-led efforts in those state legislatures that prevented those votes from being counted earlier. Um, and, and you mentioned the governor congratulating Angie Chen Button, you know, in a in a tight Texas House race in North Texas. Another election he was comfortable recognizing today was um, the presumptive Texas House Speaker, Dade Phelan, who's been sort of informally selected by his colleagues. We know that that, as a formal matter, won't happen until um, the legislature convenes in January. But it did feel to me like just sort of an ironic um, note today that that's a that's an informal election call that, you know, the governor was happy to jump into and, and say congratulations to a fellow Republican. But in this other case, he's been much more cautious. There's also the, you know, sort of logical problem of complaining about the results of an election that the Republicans largely won. They lost the presidential race, but, you know, they had a pretty good day. They had an especially good day in Texas. And, you know, even in some of these states where they're um, jumping up and down, things went okay for them. And, um, you know, at some point you can't question the race at the top of the ballot without questioning the whole, the results all the way down the ballot. So... Abby, you're up in Washington. You you spend time, you know, watching the Texas delegation. Let's talk briefly about a a President Biden tenure and what that means for 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 Texans in Congress. Uh, it, it doesn't seem like you know. It feels like four years ago when when Trump had was the declared the winner. We were we were thinking about like all these different Texans who could end up in Washington and things like that. Does it feel like there's there will be less of kind of a Texas presence in, in the Biden administration? I think that's a fair guess at this point. Now it can all change. Um, but my bet is we might see some lower ranking Texans go and serve in. They won't be the top official at a cabinet department, but they may serve in the administration. One fascinating thing um, in some of the speculation I've seen is that Biden um, is looking at maybe some losers who lost past Senate races and things like that. Um, So there may be some folks in Texas who lost elections in the past who um, maybe have a second life in politics. That's just me purely speculating. But um, I think broader, more broadly speaking, um, I think we're looking at a lot of stalemate. Um, I think the objective number one going into the new Congress is um, COVID and some kind of stimulus and dealing with it. It's clear that's what Biden's telegraphing. But I don't see a lot of sweeping legislation uh, in this moment. But the three top people in the government, McConnell, Biden, and Pelosi, are deal cutters. And so maybe something will get done of some interest. But um, it it looks, this was a stalemate election, and it looks like it'll be stalemate governance for the short term. 
Do you think, uh, just you know, off the top of your head, do you think Biden gets has more luck with McConnell than Obama did? Maybe. I mean, he was the guy who worked with McConnell when he during the Obama administration. But um, you know, I mean, I think we're even seeing right now in McConnell's objective right now is uh, you know, I premise all of this assuming he is majority leader. That could change, obviously, on January fifth, depending on Georgia. Um, but. McConnell's not shoring up Biden's victory right now. Um, and, and so I, I'm going to guess no. I mean, he, he pretty much is doing what he needs to do to gain power and maintain uh, his Republican senators. So they have a long relationship. They've been working together for, I guess, McConnell was elected in 84. So a long, long time. They know each other. There's probably trust there. But, um, you know, I'm not sure how much ball there will be to play there. Well, if, even if the talk in Washington isn't about Texans and Biden's cabinet, Texas was a big subject of conversation this week in Washington, regardless, because the state, our attorney general, was up there trying to bring it into the Affordable Care Act. We had oral arguments on Tuesday morning um, in the Ken Paxton-led lawsuit to overturn the act. Emma, you were watching those. What's your takeaway from, from what you saw in the court? So Texas has been waiting almost three years for this day. Um, the state sued, leading a, a bunch of red states, and later was joined by the Trump administration um, all the way back in February 2018, arguing basically that after Congress in a 2017 tax cut zeroed out the individual mandate, big provision of the Obamacare law that basically... Uh, taxed you, it was a penalty if you chose not to purchase insurance. Um, after Congress set that at zero, Texas argued the individual mandate was unconstitutional and thus the entire rest of the law had to fall. So sort of since the beginning of this case, um, we've been hearing a lot of skepticism from legal scholars on the right, legal scholars on the left, legal scholars who like Obamacare as a policy matter and those who really, really don't. A lot of them think that the argument really falls apart at that severability question, the question of, you know, if this one provision falls, does the entire rest of the law have to go with it? Acknowledging that this law, which has been in place something like a decade now, touches every facet of the American healthcare system, um, protections for people with pre-existing conditions, allowing young adults to stay on their parents' health insurance until age 26, subsidized insurance plans uh, for millions of people, really touches everything. And... As much as legal scholars have been skeptical of that argument, it seems like some key Supreme Court justices were skeptical as well. We heard um, kind of all eyes this morning were on Justice Brett Kavanaugh and Justice Chief Justice John Roberts, who are sort of at the ideological center of the court now that President Trump has been able to appoint three justices to it. And they both said almost outright, I see how you win on this question of severability. You know, they said it's, it seems clear from our precedent that what we need to do is maybe kill the individual mandate, but that the rest of the law can stand. And so it was interesting to see. There's been a lot of speculation, of course, about this, the new makeup of this court. Um, of course, uh, President Trump's most recent appointee, Justice Amy Coney Barrett, has recently been seated, um, giving him a, a six justice conservative majority. But they did not seem super eager to strike down the entire Affordable Care Act. Didn't they take up severability? I, I know it was argued last time when the ACA first went before the court. And I guess, I guess, did they not address it? And, you know, it was part of the argument. And when they decided that this was not a tax and they went out, they kind of took a side door out, they let this severability question there. Is there nothing in the precedent on this case on that? 
I'm blindsiding you with that question. I, I'll give you a, I'll give you an exit if you want it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll I'll refer you to um, my sophomore year of high school when that case was decided. But severability has always been a huge part of this law, right? I mean, there's so many pieces to it, but and so many of them are unpopular. What what Texas is pointing back to, and, and what is in the law in several places, is um, you know provisions characterizing the individual mandate as quote essential. And, you know, they said this is the this is the engine that drives the car. If you pull this piece out of the airplane, it, it'll, you know, crash to the ground. There's there's all sorts of transportation metaphors. Um, and what Brett Kavanaugh said was that does not mean that that's uh, an inseverability clause. You know, you can you can call something essential and that does not meet the legal standard that he recognizes in some of their previous cases. So. I mean, wh what do we make of that skepticism from the um, from these two conservative members? Uh, is that is is this you know the big kind of first early sign of disappointment among conservatives was when um, the Chief Justice Roberts uh, declined to throw out Obamacare back when you were a sophomore in high school or whenever that was. Um, <laughs> I mean, is, is this something, should conservatives be panicking about Kavanaugh right now, or is this more just, this was not a very strong case that Texas brought to the court? Um, I think if, if the court does indeed leave most of the law intact, which it's, my best guess is that's what they do, right? If you think about the three liberal justices on the court, and then you think about um, Justice Kavanaugh and Chief Justice Roberts sort of staking out the positions they seemed to this morning, that seems like the most likely outcome. That is certainly a disappointing policy result for Republicans um, in, in Texas and elsewhere, right? How long have we been hearing about repeal and replace Obamacare? Um, that said, I think that the weaknesses that a lot of legal scholars, again, you know, conservative and libertarian thinkers who, who really have no love for this as a policy matter have long said, this is not our best argument against this law. This is not a very strong argument. And, um, you know, many of them even fought against it. So I think from that perspective, it, it will not be surprising to some of the legal experts who've been watching this case most closely. And, and Abby, I mean, it seems as though we, we observed during this most recent election that uh, you know, it was a popular campaign ad among Republicans to talk about preserving pre-existing conditions. I mean, if this is indeed the direction that the Supreme Court goes, might we see kind of a sigh of relief from from Republic Texas Republicans in Congress? Possibly. I mean, if this if this gets thrown out, like to remember back when this law was passed and when I was not a sophomore in high school. <laughs> Barack Obama, I believe, had 60 senators and Nancy Pelosi had a huge majority. And um, I, if there's any sort of resolution to this, it's probably going to have to be bipartisan. And um, I, I just don't even know how you get something because it's going to be chaos in the markets and how in the healthcare market, like how con like Congress is so paralyzed and dysfunctional. I can't even fathom how it could get it together to pass any sort of like spending bill, let alone sweeping overhaul of the healthcare system and addressing it. And I mean, the Republican argument about being for pre-existing conditions, it's, I mean, the basic thing, Emma touched on that. How do you pay for people in the market with insurance who have a pre-existing condition and not having healthy people buying insurance at the same time? And so it, it, it would be a very chaotic time, but gosh, I've 
a lot of things have happened in the last few years that I never imagined happened. So who knows? All right. Well, before we get on to our next subject, let's take a small break to hear from our sponsors. Texas 2036. Rural Texas is as big as our state's future. Three million is larger than 18 states. Learn more at texas2036.org. And Texas Cattle Feeders Association. U.S. beef producers have lowered their carbon footprint by 30% while also producing more high-quality beef for American families. Learn more at tcfa.org. All right. Well, now that an election is over, we might have all thought we'd get an opportunity to get some rest. But unfortunately, on Monday, the first big landmark of the upcoming legislative session came, uh, the day in which lawmakers can start pre-filing bills for the 2021 legislative session that begins in January. Ross, you wrote about this ahead of time and have been keeping an eye on it. What did you see from the, the first kind of big landmark of the next session? You know, the early filing doesn't really give you anything but a little bit of attention. So this is members not necessarily filing their biggest, most complicated bills, but instead filing the bills that most closely match the things that they campaigned on. So we've got a lot of Democrats filing Medicaid expansion legislation that would uh, add Texas to the states that expanded their Medicaid program. It's a really attractive match. Texas has opted out since the days of Rick Perry, while a bunch of other very Republican states have opted in. I think in the elections last week, Idaho and Missouri joined the Medicaid expansion states by um, by ballot measure, um, very conservative states. So, and Texas needs money. So that's that's one of the regulars. Uh, there are a bunch of people filing. You could tell some Democrats were filing legislation that they thought would pass if Democrats were in the majority of the House and maybe had a speaker. Um, but you know, this is going to be a session where you could write most of the big issues or all of the big issues on a pretty small post-it note uh, going into the session. You've got a pandemic. You've got an economic recession, you've got big budget problems, and you've got redistricting, and everything else is just sort of mortar between the bricks. Um, a lot of what they filed, I think, was probably the mortar between the bricks. Sure, sure. Yeah, um, you did see a little bit of kind of a few wishful thinking things and also kind of an acknowledgement of the the financial situation we were in. You know, we've seen some... Um, some bills designed to expand uh, medical marijuana or marijuana legislation, uh, make, you know, uh, uh, loosen marijuana rules. I saw um, a couple bills uh, looking to bring back straight ticket voting after uh, <laughs> <laughs> last time. Please, baby, please, baby. <laughs> One election without it was enough. <laughs> exactly. Um, and then my personal favorite, the uh, make um, the day after Super Bowl Sunday a holiday which uh, I think we could all uh, agree on on that one. Um, the other kind of legislative session thing that happened this week, also on Monday, right around the time when those first bills were starting to be filed, was a email from Alan West to supporters of the Texas GOP. Alan West, the um, as many probably know, the uh, new state GOP chair, in which he um, came out and said that the state GOP will not support nor accept state rep Dade Phelan as the next speaker of the House. 
um, a pretty striking statement given that uh, Dade Phelan has made clear that he has the votes to become the next Speaker of the House. And you have West, who on the first day, or sorry, the weekend before early voting started, protesting outside the Republican governor's mansion, and now, you know, uh, raising big questions. I believe he called him a political traitor, uh, Dade Phelan. He, uh, he called Dade Phelan a political traitor um, before Phelan has even kind of ascended to the speakership. Um, Ross, I'll, I have two questions for this, but my first one is, does this matter? Is this going to make it harder for Phelan? Does, does this, you know, make the ground beneath him less firm as he as he kind of tries to keep his coalition together ahead of the first day of session? You know, first, I want to thank the chairman of the Texas Republican Party for writing tomorrow morning's column for me. I really appreciate <laughs> that. And, you know, uh, I don't think so. I was on a panel discussion uh, with Joe Strauss, the former speaker, earlier today, and someone asked him that question, and he said it probably puts Phelan in a better position than a worse position, that it actually helps him. Because, you know, one of the jobs of a speaker or a lieutenant governor, for that matter, is to protect the House or the Senate from outside slings and arrows. And this is an outside sling and arrow. And it's just, you know, it's directed at Phelan. It's not directed at the other 149 members. He takes a dart. His members are happy. Uh, I guess Alan West is happy. Dade Phelan is a little bit fortified. And we march on to the next day. My second question, which is probably even more unanswerable than the first one, is what is Alan West? I, I answered. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, you did. You did. But I mean, what is Alan West doing here? Uh, this is not party unity, and and he has he has seemed to have made the decision in his his few months leading the charge here that that party unity is not going to be a big priority for him. Is that uh, how is that going to be responded to among, you know, the Republican leaders in the state? You know, I don't know. I kind of know. I mean, I could probably guess. You could probably guess how they feel about it. And it's irritating and, you know, nettlesome and all of that kind of stuff. On the other hand, we've had um, some pretty intensive recent experience with people banging on the pots and pans to get attention and holding the attention of the public. And, you know, this is Trump style politics. And, we are beginning, as early as it is, we are beginning to position people in Texas for the 2022 elections when Greg Abbott would be seeking a third term, where Dan Patrick would be seeking a third term, where uh, Ken Paxton, if he's still around by then, will be seeking a third term or trying to move up the ladder. Glenn Hager is the same thing. Uh, we're at a transition point, and we're going to see a bunch of outside players jump into this. We're also seeing a you know, a fight inside the Republican Party between the, you know, the libertarian wing, uh, you know, Michael Quinn Sullivan was in that crowd with Sid Miller and Alan West outside of the governor's mansion hollering at the governor for executive orders. Uh, this plays into the Shelley Luther Drew Springer special election that's coming up. We're watching this sort of fissure line inside the Texas Republican Party, and I think it plays through the session and plays into the 2022 elections. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that I'm really interested in watching is how this plays out and kind of the time where Alan West is this new voice in the state Republican Party, 
or a more amplified voice. I know he's been in Texas for a while, but um, we've kind of spent the last two years being kind of an anomaly in Texas politics, at least, you know, since I've been uh, covering it, which is, is, you know, since Emma was a sophomore in high school or probably actually a little longer than that, um, you know, is that really for only those two years, the, um, the, these two years were unique in that they were two years in which the Republicans were maybe more worried about the left, about the Democrats, than they were about guarding their flanks on the right and, you know, the, the threat of the kind of insurgent wing of the party primarying them or, or whatever, you know. And, and we saw how that played out in the 2018 session. We saw how, you know, certain members of the legislature in 2018 or, or sorry, uh, 2019, um, were, were maybe willing to kind of tone it down a little bit and focus on those bread and butter issues. And because they're worried about, are, you know, are we going to keep the house and, and is Texas becoming more of a swing state? Now we're coming off this election where Democrats, you know, failed pretty miserably at, at, at making Texas a swing state and flipping the Texas house and those kinds of things. So now is that wing of the party going to be more emboldened and are they going to, are, are the kind of more establishment figures in the party going to need to go back to worrying more about them than worrying about people coming from the center or from the left party? I think the Republicans in Texas are now playing um, you know, for a long time, they had to only defend themselves in primaries because the Democrats couldn't beat them in general elections. 2018 scared them enough, and I think they'll remain respectful of 2018 going forward. They're, they're, you know, general elections are competitive now, but you're right. I think that the next set of Republican primaries are going to be really, really interesting because, like I said, a lot of these gun, you know, the expiration dates on a lot of these political milk cartons are coming up and, you know, we're going to see some changes at the top, you know, either retirement or challenge or some of those kinds of things. And, you know, I think it's going to be competitive. And we've also got pretty clear lines of attack. We've got a, we've got, a, you know, two or three different kinds of Republicans arguing from two or three different kinds of um, podiums. And, you know, that's what primaries are made of. Is it going to be a libertarian style Republican, an establishment style Republican, a social conservative, some combination of those things? I think all of that's on the table. And I was also doing this when all three of you were sophomores in high school. So, <laughs> <laughs> Ross, where would you place Phelan and all in those different groups of Republicans? I mean, what what do we expect the leadership of the state house to be like under a Phelan speakership? I, you know, I think it's gonna be a lot like Bonin. Uh, it's, in, in some ways, the coalition that put him in and the group of people that put him in and the issues that are at stake in the House are similar to what they were two years ago when Bonin was elected. Uh, if Bonin hadn't tripped, we would probably be continuing with that. Um, he's got a different personality. He's not, um, you know, Bonin was always somebody that they sent into. Um, loud debates, you know, go out, shout Dan Patrick, go over there and do this, take care of that. That's one of the, that was, they decided was a feature and not a bug. Dave Phelan's not necessarily that guy. He's a, you know, he's a good legislator. He came up as a staffer. Um, so he, you know, really is a creature of the, of the house and really knows how it works. Uh, but I think politically, I think he and Bonin are probably, probably aligned pretty closely. 
All right. Well, it'll be interesting to watch in the coming weeks and then once the session starts in 2021. Thank you all for joining us on the TripCast this week. Thank you to Emma, Ross, and Abby. Thank you to Michael Ray, our producer. Thank you to uh, all the veterans for uh, uh, serving us, and and particularly my dad, uh, one of the veterans. Shout out to him. And we will be back uh, next week. 